0: We're going to be in Matthew chapters 5 through 7 this morning as we continue our series in the book of Matthew. Um, So chapters 5 through 7 are known, you probably know this, but known as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, And I was reading about it this week and I ran across a, a great illustration of how the Sermon on the Mount, if you are not familiar with it, can be a bit shocking and confusing. Back in 1987, so 30 years ago, At Texas A&M, right here at Texas A&M, an English professor by the name of Virginia Stem Owens assigned to her class to read the Sermon on the Mount and write down their thoughts about it. So that was it. Read these three chapters of the Bible. Write down your thoughts. Now, keep in mind, this is 30 years ago. These are not uh, people that you would expect necessarily to be really biblically illiterate. We are at Texas A&M. We're in the middle of the Bible Belt. Right, but what uh, Owens found was that some of the responses she got to the Sermon on the Mount surprised her. I'm going to read a few of the responses from some of the students in her class. One student said, there's an old saying that you shouldn't believe everything you read, and it applies in this case. Another student wrote, the stuff the churches preach is extremely strict and allows for almost no fun without thinking it's a sin or not. Another one said, I did not like the essay, the Sermon on the Mount. It was hard to read and made me feel like I had to be perfect, and no one is. Uh, Perhaps the sharpest one, this student wrote, the things asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman is adultery. That is the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement that I have ever heard. Now, that student might be a little sheltered if that's the most extreme thing they've ever heard. Right, but uh, Virginia Owens wrote at this point: "I began to be encouraged. There is something exquisitely innocent about not realizing you shouldn't call Jesus stupid. I find it strangely heartening that the Bible remains offensive to honest, ignorant ears, just as it was in the first century. Sermon on the Mount is one of the most difficult sections in all of the Scripture." Right. Uh, People have tried for thousands of years to figure out what it is talking about. What is it that Jesus meant? Because uh, there are portions of it that seem to be absurd on the face of it. Now, there are other portions that make us feel happy. Right. There's other portions of it that we have written little songs about. Right. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. We've sung that since we were kids. Right. Or the wise man built his house upon the rock, right? And we have hand motions to go with it. and We like those parts. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and all these things will be added unto you, right? So there are certain parts of the Sermon on the Mount that comfort us and make us feel really good. But there are other parts of the Sermon on the Mount that are disturbing and difficult and make us feel bad about ourselves, right? So there are other parts of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says things like, if you call your brother a fool... You're in danger of the fires of hell, right? Philip Yancey in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, says when he read that verse as a child, it really scared him because he had a brother, right? I had two brothers. I don't see how it's possible to go through your lifetime with two brothers without using words like fool, right? It was stock and trade around my house. Uh, Jesus says things like, if you lust after somebody or cause somebody else to lust. You should take your eyes and rip them out or cut off your hand and throw them away from you. Otherwise, you're in danger of going to hell. He says things like, if you have an enemy, you need to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you because that reflects God. And I read that and I go, what's even the point of having enemies, right? That kind of takes all the fun out of having an enemy if I have to love them. Someone slaps you on the face, turn and let them slap the other half of your face. Right? And so we read it and we think, what in the world is going on? Uh, One of the commentaries that I read this week on the Sermon on the Mount uh, suggested eight possible interpretations of the Sermon on the Mount because for 2,000 years people have been trying to figure out what this means. And so he just listed the most popular eight interpretations. It wasn't even all of the possible ways that people try essentially to go, what Jesus is saying cannot be literally accurate. Because if it is, we are all in really big trouble. Right, I hope that when we read the Sermon on the Mount, or at least portions of it this morning, we come away with that impression that uh, if we look at the righteous standards of God that Jesus lays out in the Sermon on the Mount, man, we are all in really big trouble. Right, And what I'm going to suggest this morning is, in fact, that feeling of despair that we sometimes have when we read this text of Scripture, that feeling that I'm in big trouble, that I don't match up to the standards Jesus is laying out, that feeling is actually one of the major points of the Sermon on the Mount. All right, You and I are supposed to walk away from the Sermon on the Mount going, man, I am in big trouble and I need a lot of help if I'm going to enter the kingdom of God. As we look at the sermon on the mount this morning, here is what I'm going to suggest is the primary point that Jesus is making, okay? We are not good enough to enter God's kingdom. But Jesus is good enough to get us in. Right? We are not good enough to enter God's kingdom. That is God's standard of righteousness is a lot higher than you and I think. Right? God's standard of what constitutes good enough is way, 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 way beyond our reach. And you and I are a lot worse than we even realize we are, right? We're a lot worse than we even realize we are because it's not just the things that we say or do that are a problem. Our problem actually goes all the way into our hearts so that the things we believe and think are corrupt and wicked. And in fact, they're so corrupt and wicked that we don't even know how dark we are. But the good news is that Jesus bridges the gap between God's righteous standard and our sinfulness. See, Jesus, remember, is talking to a group of people who are waiting for the kingdom of God. And Matthew's primary purpose in his gospel, if you remember, is to help us understand that Jesus is the king who came to usher in the kingdom of God and that he is going to be the one that's going to reign on God's throne over God's kingdom. And so here in Matthew 5-7, through Jesus says, this is what the residents of God's kingdom have to look like. And he sets this standard that is so high. And he says, if you want to be in my kingdom... This is what you got to do, think, believe. And you walk away going, oh, I'm in big trouble. I don't qualify. And yet, as the gospel of Matthew moves forward, Matthew's going to show us how Jesus meets the standard on our behalf. So that where we have failed, Jesus has succeeded. So that when Jesus says the gate is extremely narrow we recognize there's actually only one person in all of history who has fit through that narrow gate because of who he is and what he's done. And that's Jesus Christ. And then Jesus reaches his hand back through that gate and says, I can get you in. That's where we're going to head with the Sermon on the Mount. Now, unfortunately, because of time, I can't read all three chapters this morning. Uh, We're going to read portions of it. Uh, If you haven't read it recently, I'd encourage you this afternoon or sometime this week, go read the entire Sermon on the Mount so that we get a a feel for the whole flow of it. But let me just lay out quickly a, a brief outline of the Sermon on the Mount. This is my outline. Whatever book you look at, we'll probably have another one. But let me just lay this out so you know sort of the flow of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus begins with what we call the Beatitudes. Now in a couple of weeks, Blake Jennings is going to come over here and preach a sermon all about the Beatitudes. So we're not going to spend a lot of time this morning on the Beatitudes except to say this. Right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to lay out that God's values are different from ours. He's going to lay out, That the type of people who inherit the kingdom of God, who enter the kingdom of God, are not the strong, the powerful, those who think they are good, but instead those who are poor in spirit, those who are meek and gentle, those who are peacemakers as opposed to the kingdoms of this world. So Jesus lays out right at the beginning that if you want to enter the kingdom of God, it will be with an attitude of humility and a posture of ultimate dependence upon God. And then he goes on and he says, you're called to be kingdom representatives. Salt, that's a preservative. And light, to shine the light of God into the world. And then he's going to say, this is what kingdom representatives do and think and believe. So in 517 to 48, he lays out these standards of the law. And that's where you have some of the toughest parts of this sermon that we'll look at, right? You've heard it said, don't lust. I say, if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery. You've heard it said, don't murder. I say, if you are angry with your brother, you're guilty before the court and so on. Then he goes on and talks about hypocrisy. It's not enough to just have external righteousness if internally your motive is to be praised for what you do. And then he talks about money and about worry, and he says, ultimately, we're called to trust God and worship God rather than money. Then he talks about judgment and how our judgment of what is righteous is often wrong. And then he says, I'm the narrow way. You want to get in, come through me. All right, that's the flow of the Sermon on the Mount. But again, let's keep our eyes sort of on the primary point we're going to look at this morning. We are not good enough to enter God's kingdom, but Jesus is good enough to get us in. And I want to show how Jesus makes this case as we move through the Sermon on the Mount. First primary point is this. We mentioned a couple of moments ago. God's standards are a lot higher than you think. As we go through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to consistently make this point that God is holier and better than you can even imagine so that your perception of what is righteous is way below the mark. I was thinking this week about uh, the Olympics last summer. And some of you will remember at the Olympics, there was an American female swimmer by the name of Katie Ledecky. Some of you will remember Katie Ledecky was unbelievably fast. I think she won four or five gold medals. But the race that I remember the most vividly was the 800 meter, something like 16 laps, right? Back and forth across the pool. She won the gold medal and she defeated the second place swimmer, the silver medalist, by 11 seconds. Right, now, now she was virtually toweling off and back in the locker room before the other people were done with their race. And I remember watching that and thinking that poor silver medalist had no idea that a whole new standard for how fast you could swim this race was about to be set. I think even Katie Ledecky was a little surprised when she hit the wall, right? Because that silver medalist thought, here's the standard. If I can just go this fast, maybe I can win. And then she realizes there's a whole other bar that I don't even come close to touching. That's what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you think you're good, particularly to the Pharisees and the scribes. You think you're good. God is Good beyond what you can imagine. You think you're righteous. You don't even touch the righteous standards of God. Look at chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. I've got it up here on the screen, or you can look in your Bible. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. In other words, Jesus says, I didn't come to mitigate the standards of God, but instead to meet them. And then he goes on and he says, for truly, I say to you until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. In other words, Jesus says, God's standards are not going away. God will remain as holy as God has always been. And his standards will still apply to those who want to be in his kingdom. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you were listening to this as a first century Jew, this would be a source of deep despair, right? And the reason is because the scribes and the Pharisees were the most righteous people you knew. They were the ones who had taken the law and they had codified the law into all of these commandments and sub-commandments. And so you would look at the Pharisees. In fact, their name means the pure or separate ones. The Pharisees made a career out of being Holy and of telling other people how to be holy. And the ordinary person would say, there's no way I could be as good as a Pharisee because I have a job that I have to do. I've got a farm, I've got a family. The Pharisees are full-time holy people. And Jesus says, unless your standard exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? Because Jesus knew something that most people didn't recognize, and that is the Pharisees' righteousness was external, but not internal. The Pharisees had codified the law where they could keep it well, and then if they failed, they would go to the temple and they would offer sacrifices. And so through a system of codified law and sacrifice to appease God, they would stand and say, hey, we're doing pretty good. right?" But Jesus says, no, you haven't even scratched the surface. You have to get into the heart before you begin to realize what righteousness ought to look like. When I was a kid, if my mom and dad said to me, Matt, go and clean your room. Uh, I was never a really organized person with space. This is true to this day. If you come look at my office or my desk, it's usually piles and it's things scattered. So cleaning the room was torture for me. So what I would do is probably what some of you did is I would take everything on the floor and I would push it into the closet and I would close the closet and just hope that when inspection time came, mom and dad didn't open the closet. Right? Quite frequently, they did not open the closet. And I passed that quick visual inspection. Right? I realize in hindsight that they almost certainly knew what I had done. But the effort of opening that closet and dealing with what was inside was too much for them a lot of times. Right? If you're a parent, you know that. You tell your kids to clean their room. You walk in, you know all that stuff is under the bed and shoved in the closet. You just don't want to mess with it because it's going to take time and pain and tears and grounding and maybe spankings and all of these things you just don't want to do. So you look at what's visible and you say, thumbs up, let's go watch TV, right? And you move back to the other room. With the Sermon on the Mount, here's what Jesus does. He says, we're going to open that closet. And we're going to go through it piece by piece by piece. We're going to shine a light into every dark corner of your heart. All right. So what he does in 5 verses 17 to 48 is he lays out six areas of holiness where he's going to say, you've heard it said X, but I say Why, right? So you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. right, verse 27, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Right, he goes on, he talks about divorce, he talks about vow-keeping, he talks about retaliation. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn them the other cheek. If they take your coat away, also give them your tunic. You've, verse 43, you've heard it said, "'You shall love your neighbor.'" But I tell you also, love your, neighbor, love your enemy as well and pray for him. So Jesus says, you've heard that righteousness is here. I'm going to tell you, it's way up here. And I'm going to shine a light into every dark corner so you understand that the righteousness God is looking for exceeds even that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And so through chapter six, Jesus addresses hypocrisy very directly as well. And he says, look, if you go to pray, don't go and pray where everybody can see you like the Gentiles do. But you pray in secret. If you're going to fast or give, don't blow trumpets in the synagogues. So everybody knows what you're doing, but you give in secret. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Why? Because the spirituality God is looking for is not a spirituality that is merely external for show, but a spirituality that transforms your heart to a heart that wants to worship God. It is an in-to-out transformation. Jesus is drawing, ultimately, on what God had told Jesus the Israelites all the way back in Leviticus chapter 19, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God am holy. Jesus, particularly in chapters five and six is saying the standard of God is a holiness that isn't merely external, but digs into the heart and transforms your heart as well. Absolute holiness, like God is holy. Now, as you, as you hear that, that ought to make you feel a bit of despair, right? Because not only are God's standards higher than you think, but the problem is your heart is darker than you even realize. The problem is we read this and we go, uh, this is impossible. Just like those students in Virginia Owen's English class, they go, look, this makes me feel like I have to be perfect. And I'm not perfect. This is absurd, right? The things that I think Become the standard for how I will be judged. If so, we are all doomed. Throughout this sermon, Jesus will use harsh language even toward his audience, right? This is not an illustration of a sermon straight out of how to win friends and influence people. He calls them hypocrites. He says, if you being evil know how to give your kids good gifts, how much more does God being good know how to give you good gifts? You people are evil, but God is good. You are hypocrites, but God is always true. And so he says, your heart is even darker than you realize. Right? Many of us in this room perhaps ha- have read articles in the news and thought, I, I would never do what that person has done. Right? So you read an article and you're like, somebody abused their kid, maybe. Right? Somebody hit their child or hurt their child. And you go, I would never, ever hurt my child. You've considered it, haven't you? You've thought about it. I remember when uh, my oldest daughter was a baby. I've probably told some of y'all this before, but she was colicky and she would cry and cry and cry. And we had a hard time getting her to sleep and therefore we didn't sleep. And I remember late one night, I just got so angry with her. And I remember thinking, what's wrong with me? I'm angry at a baby because she's keeping me from sleeping. So I woke my wife up and handed her off. Okay? <laughs> How many times have we thought, I would never, but the reality is, it's, it's in our heart, right? I would never, ever shoot somebody on Highway 6. Okay? <laughs> but it's crossed my mind, right? <laughs> it's in my heart. And the digger we, the deeper we dig into our hearts, the more we realize that that violence and that hatred and that lust and that selfishness, it's there. It's just that we're really good at hiding it. And what Jesus is going to say is, now your heart is a whole lot darker than you realize it is. Even the best among us. I I I remember vividly when I was in my 20s talking to an older Godly man at our church who has now since passed away, but uh, he was, I don't know, 50, 60 years older than I was at the time. And I remember him talking about how when he came into church, it was so hard some days for him to focus because he struggled with lust when he saw these co-eds walking into church. And I thought, if that man struggles with lust, I'm doomed. I'm doomed. Even the best among us have darkened hearts and darkened minds. One of the things Jesus will point out that poses a problem for us too is that uh, we don't even assess ourselves very well, do we? We don't even know those areas where we are sick and sinful. Look at Matthew 6, verses 22 and 23. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear... Your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? What's he getting at? This is right in the middle of the section about worshiping money or God. He's going to go on and say, you can't worship two masters. Either you're going to worship money or you're going to worship God. And then he'll go on and he'll talk about anxiety. And how anxiety is really just another manifestation of money worship, right? Because you trust in your stuff instead of in God. Here's what he's saying. You think you worship God. You look at yourself and you think, my eyes are good. I see clearly. I know who I am. I know who God is. I know what God wants from me. I'm righteous. And he says, no, your eyes are bad. You don't even see what you ought to see in your own heart. And if you don't even see it, how thick is the darkness? When I was about 15 years old, I went to take my test for my driver's permit. And of course, they had to do an eye exam. And at that point, it turned out that I didn't pass the eye exam. So I had to go to the eye doctor and I had to get a a formal examination and I had to get contacts and all this kind of stuff. And I I will never forget the first time I put on those contacts, some of you can remember this experience, all of a sudden I could see things that I had not been seeing for years. I looked at the trees, the trees are what I remember, and I went, I can see leaves, individual leaves on the trees. I went to a football game, a high school football game that night, and I could read the numbers on the... uh, on the yard markers that I had never been able to read before. I didn't even realize how blurry my vision had become until it was corrected. And that's what Jesus is saying. All of us have blurry spiritual vision. We don't see right. All right this is where we are able now to understand Matthew chapter 7 as well. When Jesus says this, this famous passage, do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way that you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Anybody who thinks Jesus lacks a sense of humor only needs to read this passage. Okay, because really imagine the imagery. It's become very familiar to us, but you walk around and you go, hey, Blake, you got something in your eye, right? And as I'm saying it, there is a log on my face, right? Jesus says, you look at that speck, you miss the log. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What is Jesus getting at? He is not saying that we ought never to have moral standards, right? He's not saying that it's wrong to call sin, sin. Instead, what he's saying is that all too often we see the sin of others and we fail to notice our own because our eyes are bad. Our eyes are clouded up, right? So many of you right now, or on an average week, you listen to the sermon and you think, my spouse needs to hear this. My kids need to know this. Right? That guy or that girl sitting over there, I know that they need this. right? And so you forward the sermon to your friends and relations. And Jesus says, you first need to look in here at the log that's sitting in your own eye. By the standard you measure, it's going to be measured out to you as well. But your eyes are bad. You and I are even... Darker than we think. And our hearts are darker than we realize. One of uh, the most powerful passages in the Old Testament that centers on hypocrisy is after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, You may remember that the prophet Nathan comes to talk to David about it. And Nathan begins by telling David this story. You remember this story? He says, "Uh, David, let me tell you a story about what somebody in your kingdom did. There was a wealthy guy and he had a neighbor. And this wealthy guy had flocks of lambs and goats and all of this livestock and all this money. And his neighbor had this one little bitty lamb. And the wealthy guy reached over and he grabbed his neighbor's lamb. And he barbecued it for a party, leaving his neighbor with nothing. And David's moral indignation is stirred up and he goes, that man should die. And Nathan goes, you are that man. You see the flaw in this story. You don't understand, David. What you did was reach over and you took Uriah's wife and had him put to death. That's the darkness of hypocrisy. And Jesus says that darkness is in all of us. Be honest. If everybody in this room were able to view a tape of the secret thoughts and the hidden agendas and the -the under-the-table motivations that you have had just in the past week, how embarrassed would you be? All of us would stand condemned, not only by God, but by our peers as well, wouldn't we? Your heart is darker than you realize. this is really bad news as you hear the Sermon on the Mount. This is not a sermon designed to make you feel better about you. Okay, there is bad news. Okay, but as we get toward the end of the sermon, we see, yeah, God's standards are a lot higher than we think. Our hearts are darker than we realize. But Jesus can bridge the gap. That's the good news embedded actually throughout the Sermon on the Mount and particularly at the end. Jesus can bridge the gap. I want to look at the last few verses of the Sermon on the Mount from chapter 7, starting in verse 21. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain came a-tumbling down. You know the rest of it. The rain fell. The floods came. The winds blew and slammed against that house. Yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Notice what Jesus gets at. He says that there are going to be people who say, I know God because look at all that I have done. I cast out demons and I prophesied and I did all this good stuff. And Jesus is ultimately going to say to some, Depart from me because I did not know you, because you didn't listen to what I said. No matter all the things you do that you think are righteous and good, your heart is sick. And the only way is, hear what I'm saying, you build that house on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Listen to my words. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven goes to the one who says, God, I I read this and I can't do it. I I can't even come close to this. And Jesus says, I'm the rock on which you can build a house where I will equip you to meet the standards of God. Jesus says, I I can get you in, right? You're not good enough, but I can get you in. Several weeks ago, I went to a conference where uh, some of our pastors had been invited as guests. And it was a large conference and a big arena, big worship leaders, speakers, all this kind of deal. Uh, we had these guest passes that allowed us to go into certain guest areas where uh, we could kind of be in, in a certain seating area and all of this kind of stuff. And we would eat in certain areas. Well, one day I was kind of walking around this arena and I had my guest pass with a little G and I didn't realize that my guest pass actually didn't get me in anywhere that I wanted to go. It only went into certain areas. So I walked to this certain door and I was looking for a friend who had kind of told me to meet him beyond this door. And as I walked up, there was a very large man standing next to this door, tall, big, strong. And he said, "Uh, do you have an escort? And I said, I got a guest pass, right? And he goes, you can't come back here with that pass. You need someone with an all access pass to get back in here. And all of a sudden, I realized, man, I am not as important as I thought I was important. There's an all-access pass, and I don't have one, right? Later on that day, we we actually did have an escort that was helping us sort of navigate this deal, and he walked us straight through that door with his all-access pass. I was not sufficient to get through that door, but somebody else had the pass to take us through that door. That's what Jesus is saying. You can't get in, but I can get you in. How does Jesus do that? Well, of course, as you move through the book of Matthew, you see that what Jesus did is that he Took upon himself the penalty for all of our failure to obey God's law. Jesus died in our place on the cross, and then he rose again and he defeated death and sin so that the gap between how sinful I am and how great God is is bridged by Jesus. I can be forgiven of every time I have thought something angry, lustful, greedy, violent, inappropriate. Every time I have acted on those things, there is forgiveness because of what Jesus has done. then there's something else. As you move through the New Testament, here's what you see. It's not only that Jesus has allowed for us to be forgiven, but because of his forgiveness, we are now cleansed of sin and we can be vessels of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit dwells in God's people, now we have a chance at at least approximating and nearing the standards of God. We'll never achieve in this life Because of our sin, we'll never achieve the holiness of God. But we move closer through the power of the Spirit. Look at Romans chapter 8. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Watch this. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What the Sermon on the Mount ultimately lays out for us now, as those who know Jesus Christ, it's not not a standard now that you have to meet in order to get to heaven, but instead, through the power of the Spirit, you say, I see the righteousness of God, and so each day, through the power of the Spirit, I say, God, draw me closer to your holiness. See, the law couldn't do it because we were sinful and separated from God. I can tell you what to do, but you would never be able to do it. The spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, if you believe in Jesus Christ, now lives in you. Right, so so Jesus tells us again, we're not good enough to enter God's kingdom, but Jesus is good enough for all of us. Good enough to get us in and gracious enough to bring us in and powerful enough to give us his spirit so we can obey God. We're going to celebrate communion in just a moment. As we prepare, let me offer a few thoughts of application. First of all, we need to acknowledge our sinful heart. Right, if you're in here this morning and you think, you know what, I, I'm pretty good. I pretty much have this righteousness thing together. What that would suggest is that you don't understand the darkness of your own heart. Right? It may be that you're here and you think, I know that I can know God just because I'm a good person. You may think God is going to allow me to go to heaven one day because I'm trying hard. I'm doing my best. And the message of the Sermon on the Mount is that's not good enough. And what you and I need is to trust in Jesus who died in our place and rose again. If you have not trusted in him, that's the message of the Sermon on the Mount. Acknowledge our sinful heart and then thank God that Jesus bridged the gap. Thank God that Jesus bridged the gap. And then day by day, moment by moment, we ask God to transform us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Say, God, I'm not anywhere near where I need to be. But over the course of this lifetime, through the power of God's Spirit, I want to draw closer until the day I see Jesus face to face and he transforms me into the image of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 3, we are being transformed from glory to glory into the image of Jesus Christ. So we ask God to transform us through the power of the Spirit. The communion is a wonderful opportunity for us this morning to acknowledge our sin and to thank God that Jesus bridges the gap. If you know Jesus Christ, if you've trusted in him, you're welcome to participate with us this morning, whether you're a member of Grace Bible Church or not. If you have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ, the best way to use this time is to take a moment and thank God that Jesus bridges that gap and acknowledge your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. This may be that moment for you. As we celebrate communion, we remember all that God has done to bridge our gap between not close to enough to more than enough in Jesus Christ. So let's thank God for that as the men bring the elements forward. 1 Corinthians 11, in verse 23, the Apostle Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, that in Jesus Christ you bridged that gap between our deep, dark sinfulness and your perfect and bright righteousness. We pray that we would continue to be grateful. We pray that your spirit would empower us to grow closer to you. That although we recognize we will never meet your standard because we're sinful, we also know that your spirit empowers us for the task daily. We pray we would rely on him. We thank you for your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.